Because what do you do with power? Well, it says she extends her right hand and she extends, she extends her right hand to the poor and she extends her left hand to the needy. And this is at the crux of wisdom, biblical, divine, godly wisdom. You have power, you do your work with excellence, but you understand that the purpose of it is to extend that power, to extend that love to others as Jesus demonstrated for us. Hey everyone, welcome to the second season of the Faith at Work podcast, where we get the joy of bringing you conversations that discuss how our faith informs our everyday work. I'm your host, Jen Kelly, joined by my friend and fellow pastor, Daniel Small. This season, we're going to be sitting down with a variety of experts, thought leaders, and working professionals to talk about how to navigate difficult everyday situations at work and how our faith should inform our response. All of this is to help stir our imaginations, to give us new insights and practical ways to be people who work with wisdom. Today we're talking with Dr. Hannah Stoles about what biblical wisdom looks like on an individual and organizational level. Dr. Stoles is an author, teacher, speaker, and brilliant academic with a focus on sustainable supply chain management and the intersection of faith and business strategy. She currently teaches at the Hand Camera School of Business at Baylor University, and she recently wrote the book, Wisdom-Based Business, Applying Biblical Principles and Evidence-Based Research for a Purposeful and Profitable Business. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Hey, Hannah, we're so glad you're able to join us here today. Welcome, Hannah. Hi, Daniel. Yes. Hi, Jen. It's great to be here with you. Great. So I'm really excited about this conversation because what our listeners don't know is that I was one of your students while I was studying at Wheaton College, and I was completing, um, or I was in your supply chain class and also your market research class, and a lot of the concepts that you were talking about in your book, Wisdom-Based Business, were similar concepts that we were talking about in our classes, so it was really fun for me to get an early preview into some of those ideas and some of those things that you were working on uh, at the time, and now here we are. I get to interview you about them, which is super fun, Um, and there is going to be a test afterwards I wrote for you. No, no test. (laughs) No, no test afterwards. That is a cool full circle moment. I hope I ace it. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Me and you both, Hannah. Me and you both. So that said, you've done a lot of work on what wisdom looks like in the workplace, particularly at an organizational level. Um, For our conversation today, though, we want to discuss some of those foundational principles for wisdom that you see in Scripture and how those might play out both for an individual, somebody at work, but also on that broader organizational level. But before we get there, maybe just tell us a little bit more about your journey and how you became so interested in the intersection between faith, work, supply chain, and business. Yeah, absolutely. I know it sounds like a a weird combination of things to be passionate about. Um, I don't think a lot of times you think, I'm going to integrate my theology with supply chain management. And um, it's, I mean, you know, you don't necessarily, most people don't also, you know, at an early age say, oh, I want to go into logistics and trucking and supply chain management either. But I think over the last five years, we're much more familiar with supply chain management for sure. So I would say that I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were uh, missionaries. Uh, My dad, you know, they came back to the state. So I grew up in in the U.S. And one of the things that I really noted in my parents' walks with God and their, uh, my dad was a worship pastor and and served in his church and music, um, that I didn't necessarily see where my skills and my talents, you know, at an early age, um, really intersected or, um, made sense within what we would call like a traditional full-time ministry job. 
Um, actually, at a really early age, I thought I would go into like law or mm. <laughs> um, maybe something in foreign diplomacy. I love languages and 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 culture and and global studies. And um, actually, I, I went and started with um, international political economics in Mandarin as my undergrad um, while I was in the army. And really quickly realized that um, a God directs our steps, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. the paths we put ourselves on yep. <laughs> aren't the ones that God really has for us. But He uses all the skills that we develop, and He teaches us as we walk. And I think as we walk, He guides where we walk. And um, so I didn't really have. I thought you needed to go into like a humanitarian kind of job to really serve God well. And because I didn't necessarily see a trajectory for like, you know, what we traditionally call full-time ministry. Um, I thought to myself, well, if you're in full-time ministry, you can only minister to the people who come in the doors of your church. So what does it look like to be in full-time ministry where you take the church outside those doors and into the world? And so I think initially my goal and my my perspective in life was how can I be full-time and my whole life serving God in everything I do? You know, as as um, in whatever career I go into, I, I didn't necessarily want to be a, a pastor or a missionary, but I wanted the work that I did to call me into places where I could take the kingdom of heaven, where I could take the church, where I could take the love of God and the gospel with me. And so that was where I started. And I got into it and I loved traveling. I loved global business. I spoke Mandarin in the late 90s. And so I ended up in buying for a really small company and really was just amazed early on at how in an entry level supply chain position, I got to talk to people around the world every day wow. that I went into my work. Wow. And I was like, that's really cool. Like from the US, it's not, you know, it's, it's not foreign diplomacy, but in business, I'm making decisions that are impacting people all over the world. And so um, fast forward a little bit, um, got married, had a couple kids, decided to go back and get my doctorate in supply chain management and to really work with companies and do research and build knowledge in this space. And I realized along the way, I love it, Deuteronomy 6, you know, it's kind of one of those cornerstone verses that Jesus refers back to, um, you know, when somebody says, well, how are you How are you holy? What does it look like to be righteous? Hmm. And Jesus refers back to Deuteronomy 6, and he says, love God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all, we say strength, right, in our mm-hmm. English Bibles. And he was really saying, love God with all your heart, with all your mind, so with all your intellect and with all of your strength, yes, but actually the word was resources. And so as I started doing research in the supply chain space, I was like, wow, how do I love God? How do I teach others to love God with their resources, with their intellect and their, their hearts, of course, but with their resources. And um, it was actually working in sustainable supply chain research that I realized that companies have a massive impact on people's lives when they steward their resources really well. So that's probably a long answer to your question. Um, it's a weird journey to get to the intersection of faith, work, supply chain, and business, but that's kind of the, the short story of how I arrived, I think, where I am today. Wow, that's incredible, Hannah. It's not a weird story. I think it's actually really applicable uh, for a lot of our listeners that are paying attention to wherever job they might find themselves in. Um, As you mentioned, you've spent several years of your academic career and writing being focused on biblical wisdom and what it looks like, particularly in the workplace. 
And we want to kind of take a step back a moment and start from an individual perspective. Given the research you've done on wisdom literature in the Bible, how would you say scripture kind of paints a picture of wisdom or describes wisdom for our, for our listeners? Yeah, um, I love talking about wisdom. It's definitely, you know, the kind of the framework that I write out of and hopefully live out of as well. So thanks, Jen, for giving me a question about my favorite thing in the world to talk about. <laughs> um, and as a listener, if you don't know this, I'm guessing, I'm guessing you do. Your, your pastor certainly is a, a very Bible-based teacher. Um, you know, there are certain books of the Bible that really focus specifically on wisdom. And, you know, that's really Proverbs. Um, a lot of the writing of King Solomon, um, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, um, obviously Solomon wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And then the book of Job is kind of in that wisdom genre as mm -hmm. well. And then some of King David's writing. And so when you're thinking about scripture and scripture that defines wisdom, we really do get the, the biggest kind of works of wisdom out of the Old Testament from those books, from the writing of David and Solomon. And I love how wisdom is portrayed in the ancient Near East. Um, this is something that we don't always know when we open up our Bibles and read them today. We don't have the context that, you know, the Hebrew people had when they um, probably heard the oral tradition of Proverbs being read to them. But in the ancient Near East, wisdom was a woman. Mm -hmm. Wisdom was always personified as a woman. And Jen's when like, preach. <laughs> preach. Jen's very excited uh, about I that. <laughs> well, I, I get really excited yeah. about wisdom being a woman because I'm a, we can identify. But when you open, open up Proverbs in Proverbs 1 through 9, Lady Wisdom shows up, right, at the beginning of the book. So if you really want to dig into wisdom, Proverbs is the place to start. And it's an awesome book for it because there's 31 chapters. Most months have, you know, 30, 31 days. And so you can always read a Proverbs day, which is great um, for Bible reading. But when you talk about the character of wisdom and what does wisdom look like, I think first we want to know that, um, you know, wisdom is active in public. Mm. So wisdom has a voice both... Um, uh, Solomon actually doesn't talk a lot about the temple. Solomon talks a lot about people in public life. So outside the doors of the church, what does it look like to be a person of God? Somebody called by God in the work that you do. Um, the other thing that's interesting about wisdom is that it says in the New Testament, in Paul's writing, that Jesus became wisdom for us. So the other amazing thing about wisdom, I think a lot of times we, we read Proverbs and it has so many great lessons. It has things like dogs and vomit and lady wisdom and Proverbs <laughs> 31 and all kinds of great passages. Um, and some of it's overwhelming and it seems hard to live up to. But the New Testament reassures us that Jesus became wisdom for us, meaning that we rely on the cross and the gospel. And our wisdom is not perfected in our own actions. It's perfected in Jesus. And so I think that's really important when we think about wisdom, um, very practically speaking. So if you really wanted a practical definition, wisdom is the ability to discern what to do, hmm. <laughs> the right and the wrong in any situation. Um, so there's both practical wisdom, which is really kind of a, a level of discernment. And then there's divine wisdom where the Holy Spirit inspires, inspires in us to love what is good and to desire and to be motivated to do it out of love. And I think at the, at the core of wisdom is love that motivates us in our decisions. Hmm. That's good. That's good. Hannah, um, so obviously we're talking a little bit further about the wisdom literature and where we see wisdom really show up in Scripture, and it's it's rich, right? We have a lot of writings from David and Solomon. Um, but maybe if you could just talk a little bit more practically, what does it look like? 
what does it look like when somebody's reading through even these um, these the wisdom literature and scripture? Like, what does it look like for someone to embody these qualities of wisdom um, in, in their particular vocation or whatever they're doing? I know you said wisdom; it, it's active in, in public. Jesus became wisdom, but maybe if you could just give a few vignettes or just a few ideas of how you've really seen that play out for people. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think I didn't say this before, but a lot of the really the core scripture um, in in the Bible, even that talks about wisdom is, you know, that A to Z acrostic that shows up at the end of the book of Proverbs that we often get taught as the, you know, the, the excellent wife, which is really the, the valiant woman and really is kind of the penultimate description of wisdom and action. And so Proverbs 31, 10 through 31 is a standalone chapter. It's an A to Z acrostic in the Hebrew alphabet. And it really does give us the qualities and the action of wisdom. So if you haven't read Proverbs 31 as an entrepreneurial business text before, I encourage you, if you're listening, to go and read it again um, in a different light. But what we see there, if you think about the qualities of wisdom and what we see in business business practice, I guess, for an individual who works, um, I love this one example. I don't know. Most people have have probably bought a house or leased um, an apartment or done some kind of real estate transaction in their lives. And um, it's interesting, a friend of mine worked in real estate and worked with a lot of people in the church and there were different opportunities that you have where you go in to buy a home and you recognize the value of the house you know the market value and especially during you know maybe um a 2008 few years back um you know during the the financial crisis a lot of people were upside down on their homes or in really dire straits in terms of the the situation that they're selling and there was this one thing that my friend said to me Um, It was that, you know, people think sometimes that they're able to drive the price of a house down or a bargain down. And then when they get this really good deal on a house, they say, oh, God really blessed that. Mm. And there's this this kind of perception that like, oh, if you get if you have a great transaction in business, um, it must be blessed by God. And I think sometimes we confuse like financial blessing or, you know, um, resource blessing with with the blessing of God or that it's a reflection of God's favor on our lives. And the reason I share this is because when you when you think about wisdom and Proverbs um, throughout the entire book, and I love Proverbs 20, 21, and 22, the chapters, because they really dig into like pricing strategies and do you negotiate, um, you know, down in business? And then do you walk away? There's actually a verse that says, um, if you go into a negotiation and you drive the price down and then you walk away from that negotiation saying, ha I took advantage of that person. Look what I got for this low price that God affords that. Mm. And so when we think about wisdom and the quality of wisdom and the character of wisdom, um, you know, I, I think about it in a business space. It's saying, how do we go into our interactions and our transactions and say, I'm going to be a wise business person. Like you don't leave money on the table. I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> be profitable yeah. and excellent in your work, but understand how your actions in your work provide blessing and meet the need of the person you're transacting with. You know that you can um, provide blessing and meet the needs of your suppliers and your customers profitably for your own organization. So I know I'm jumping ahead to the organizational space, but in, in a personal level then, it's looking at it as an individual and saying, um, what does it mean to embody relationship in a way that I, I go into saying the other person in this relationship should be as or more blessed than me because of our exchange, whether it's conversation, whether it's a business exchange. And this is Jesus's heart. 
Jesus' heart was to say, like, when you walk, when everybody walked away from interacting with Jesus, they were like healed, they were fed, they had hope. I mean, they were way more blessed, right? Half the time Jesus was like tired and needed to get on a boat to go away and maybe have a snack on his own. I don't know what he was doing, but (laughs) sleep. And um, Jesus taught us this kind of model of not even servant leader, but sacrificial leadership, sacrificial love of others. And this is this is at the core of wisdom. It shows up throughout Proverbs. It shows throughout throughout David's writing that if we want to be wise, we need to understand how to love others well. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's so good. And I feel like what I what I really heard you saying there is it completely it completely flips the script the way that you think about business too because you're you know you're not just thinking about yourself or what you can extract or what you can get out of something but you're you're thinking about the other person in a different uh, light in a different situation you're actually you're seeking the good of the other and I feel like that is so so important there so here's kind of the million dollar question that I want to ask then so uh, wisdom obviously there's some practical ways to embody it Proverbs 31 talks about that um, in your experience, though, how do you how do you arrive there? How do you get there? And um, so I'll, I'll just share kind of a personal story myself. When I was working in the corporate world um, for a couple of years for a large consulting firm, I, I noticed that I was uh, getting more anxious. And one of the things um, that I started doing was I was going on, I was blocking 15, 20 minutes every single day, and I was going on a walk no matter what. So n- no one could interrupt that time. I would decline meetings, whatever the case was. Um, and so I would take that time, I would go on a walk and I would memorize a verse or I would meditate in a verse. And for me, doing that in the middle of the day really helped center kind of my attention mm-hmm. and uh, just kind of helped kind of refocus me where I was. Um, except I, when I became a pastor, that actually all changed. Until he started working alongside <laughs> yeah. with me, Hannah. I interrupt his lunches all the time. I'm like, come on. Come yeah, on, Daniel. Jen schedules meetings with me right at noon. <laughs> Um, Love it, <laughs> but yeah, that's a that's a, another story for another time. Um, so, for you, how have you? You know, are there certain practices or things that either you have practiced or you've seen other people practice that have t- you know helped you really see the value in other people or have really helped you take on that quality of wisdom that you were talking about? Yeah, it's such a great question, and um, I love this because wisdom is really practical, right? Um, the wisdom literature is really practical, and so when you're thinking about how do we stay wise. Um, really, it comes down to what fuels your decisions, what fuels your motivation. And so I would say, like, like, like you said, Daniel, like taking breaks, you know, um, to go for a walk, to meditate, to read your Bible, like the spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines are there to center us, right? So reading our Bible, it centers us on truth, going to church, it puts us in a community, it reminds us of the awesomeness of God, and it helps us to fall more in love with them. You know, our community of Christians around us, we can encourage each other in the faith. And I love this because, um, you know, Paul says it to do everything that we do as if we're doing it unto God. And I think that sometimes the anxieties, um, in it, especially in high pressure work environments, you know, where you have deliverables and there's performance expectations, um, it is really easy to get stressed and to, you know, I've definitely, you know, in my own research process and throughout my career, had had times where I really struggled with sleep and with really being able to entrust the work that I was doing to God. And I think that this is a really key thing. We have to realize that we are called to love God with our resources, which includes our work. And if we're loving God with our work, then it is not for ourselves that we're doing it. And I get way more anxious when I think my performance reflects on me. Now I get a different kind of anxiety when I think my performance is going to reflect on God 
cared by God in some way. Yeah. But when we realize we're stewards, we manage our stress in different ways. I love this. My dad always told me this. He said, you know, if you can't lay down the work that you're doing, then you're probably doing it for yourself and you're not really doing it for oh. God. Yeah, that hurts. <clears throat> that's good. <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah. So I think sometimes our identities get so wrapped up into our performance and our jobs and our titles and our pay. And we forget that our identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And God's not going to measure us on our paychecks or our titles or, you know, how many direct reports we have. God wants to know the impact of our lives in loving other people. And I think sometimes that we have to trust God in our performance, show up with excellence, work hard, and know that he's going to direct our steps. So um, I still have sleepless nights sometimes, but <laughs> I want to be motivated because I love God and I love people around me. And it shifts my stress, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And by doing those practices, it, it refocuses us, it recenters us so that we can really understand like wisdom, the ability to discern what's right next to do. And if we just stop doing those practices, we won't be able to do that. All right. So we're going to kind of turn uh, the corner here. We've discussed what wisdom looks like on a personal level, but let's talk about the organizational level now. In your book, you discuss this idea of a wisdom-based business model. Now, I, Hannah, I would love if you could unpack that a little further. Give us a, a little bit of a definition, especially for our listeners who maybe have never even heard of that before, and maybe some examples of how you've seen this play out for organizations. Yeah, I love this. You can tell I love it because I already started about talking about organizations yeah. earlier <laughs> in the individual section. Yeah. <laughs> um, because it ends. As individuals, we're in community, right? We don't, we're not in business, you know, as a, it's very hard to be in business as a solo person because you have customers or you have suppliers and you're working with other people, even if you're a single person practice. <laughs> um, so when we think organizationally, how does this play out? I love it because Proverbs 31 really talks about an ancient supply chain. So we get an organizational model from scripture. And I didn't see that initially. Honestly, um, I fell into this. Um, really working with Fortune 500 companies. And I was doing research on um, kind of environmental practices and lean practices. So if you're not familiar with lean strategies, if you're listening and you're not in business, um, lean strategies are how um, companies look at the quality of their products, they look at efficiencies, and they look at how do they better engage their employees in attaining that quality. And it's really interesting. Lean also has to do with, you know, inventory and other business things that we're not going to talk about. But um, this, the, the companies we were talking about, we had been commissioned by the Department of Defense to explore lean and green strategies in these Fortune 500 companies. And, um, you know, so we're sitting at the table with companies like Walmart, like, you know, General Electric, big organizations. Wow. And they're saying things, individuals within these organizations are saying our strategies, you know, around environmental care. You know, we want there to be resources for our kids and our grandkids. And so it's not just about what we're buying today, but we think about the impact of our decisions. And I was like, wow, I mean, organizationally, that makes sense. And of course, they have to do it profitably. But they're also motivated by something that's more altruistic, more like a higher motivation. And so all of these strategies that we were talking with these companies about made them more profitable. Sure, they're in business. <laughs> but they also made their businesses better places to be. For their employees and i was like wow um this is really biblical i wonder if anybody is telling the christians about this. <laughs> <laughs> um and as i started to dig into wisdom literature i was like oh it's really all here 
you know, Solomon and David were talking about these things about how you love your neighbor. You know, how do you price your products? How do you negotiate? How, um, how do you take care of your employees? I love in Proverbs 31, it says she rises while it's still night to create tasks for her workers. Mm-hmm. Wow. So basically, you know, if you've worked in a management position, you know, this is that like rising, it's getting to work before everybody else to make sure they have clear job descriptions and role delineation so that your, your employees, your workers can show up and know what their goal is for the day. So their work is satisfying and it's dignified. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. And um, the, the really cool thing is a lot of the examples of this have come out of secular companies. So if you aren't familiar with the container store, it's a retail store that sells containers. There you go. Um, and you no brick ball. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. Um, and the, the founding CEO really um, recognized a couple of things. You know, people need more organization. It takes some of that stress and anxiety out of life. Um, and the other thing is when you go to do your organization, the, the business structure of retail, retail is one of the highest turnover rates of any industry mm-hmm. in the US. And so we looked at his organization and he said, well, what can we do to make the container store a place that people want to stay working? You know, uh, know, when you think about working in a retail store, most people think, well, that's an entry level job. That's something you do when you're in high school or college um, and you're going to move on from it. And so the container store actually invested more in employee development and training than any other like retail store ever had. And so this is this is actually a biblical principle. It's a principle of discipleship. It's a principle of, of training, right? To say it's important to invest in your workers and in, in, in the people in your ecosystem and say, I'm willing to invest in you. Even if you walk away, I want you to be well-trained in what you come to work to do. Hmm. And it was really cool to see during, you know, they had within, you know, five years, they were one of the top workforces and workplaces in America. They had the lowest turnover of any retail store in the country. Wow. And even in the 2008 recession, when um, there were a lot of layoffs, um, it was really interesting. And this was when it was still the founding CEO. He actually took a huge pay cut and across their C-suite, their chief suite, all their executives, they all took pay cuts and they didn't have to lay anybody off. Hmm. And so this is a picture of saying, we want to invest in people and people matter for our company. And if you go to the container store today, they're really well informed. They seem like they want to be there at work and they take care of you as a customer. So it's made them really profitable. Um, so I love what they've done. And they actually talk a lot about like loving your employees, loving your customer, loved employees can love customers. And they have that language, wow. non-Christian, secular company, very profitable. Um, and so there's lots of examples like that where there's organizations that understand people are central central to exchange and, and how you treat people is really gonna fuel the longevity of your business. Hmm. Um, the other example I love is I Have a Bean, um, which is a, a local Wheaton coffee brewery. Daniel, you probably had I, I Have a Bean I actually used to work for I Have a Bean. Fun fact. So when I was when I was at Wheaton as a student, I was a barista in their coffee shop. Of course you were. Yep. Oh, Pouring nice. latte art At the library. <laughs> That's why yep. you give me a hard time about my coffee. Absolutely. Okay, go ahead, Hannah. <laughs> now, now you know. Yeah. Now you know. Now so Daniel knows this. But, but in case you didn't, Jen, um, you know, I have a bean really started because um, the, the founder really fell in love with coffee. He was he had an engineering background. And, um, you know, whether you're a Starbucks lover or not, a lot of it is made to be, you know, um, sugared up. Let's just say it that way. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, I just want to have a really good drinkable coffee. And so he created a, a coffee roasting method. And in, along his journey, 
of creating his coffee roasting method, um, he realized that there is a whole group of people coming back into our society that um, don't have opportunities to kind of rejoin the workforce because of um, being convicted of felonies. So if you didn't know where I was going with that, um, he was actually looking, he had two jobs, the roastery, and then he had um, a, a tech company on the side. And he was really looking for a programmer in his tech company, and he couldn't find anybody to do the work for him. And so he reached out, he had a family member who had, had been convicted, had, was an ex, um, was out of prison, and um, he hired him on to do this project for him. And after hiring him, his HR company called him and said, we just had a flag on one of your employees. And he was like, oh, really? And they were like, yeah, you know that you have a felon, an ex-felon working for you. And he was like, yeah. And they're like, well, we, we can't do your payroll for you. It's against our policy. Wow. And so we realize there are people out there with skill sets who have paid the price of their mistakes that, you know, the systems are, are set up against them so that they can't reenter society in meaningful ways. Hmm. And he was really um, arrested by that. And so he started looking at saying, okay, well, if I build out, you know, now he's passionate about coffee as well. So he's like, is there a roasting process that I can create where we can create entry or re-entry jobs, not entry level, but re-entry jobs into work um, for people who are coming out of the prison system and have paid had paid their time and really need an on-ramp or a bridge back into the workforce. And so I love I love the story of I Have a Bean because um, Pete saw a need, a human need, and built a workforce model around yeah. the coffee roasting process and the sales process and um, Daniel, I don't think that you have any, you know, any felony convictions. So I know you were <laughs> not that I'm aware of, at least. Um, <laughs> but you know, really actually, you don't know about my past, are... Hannah. You don't. <laughs> I won't make assumptions. I know the barista space is a little different. Yeah. But um, really created a model of loving and loving his neighbor in yeah. a really unique way. So I love, I love those examples. I think both of the organizational examples that I start from is. You, you can't have a wisdom-based business model without a leader who wants to serve people. Mm. So servant leadership is really fundamental. Um, and a leader who is aware of the people that are impacted by their company. Yeah, so really the really fast, really fast, it starts off with servant leadership, which I know we're going to talk more about. But servant leadership positions you to see people. And then you can build out strategies of a company that are all there in Proverbs that focus on who are the people impacted, um, how sustainable is your business? What's the quality of your product? Does it really serve people? Um, what's your long term? Are you eternally oriented? And um, and do you understand the supply chain? Do you understand need and um, demand and how to fulfill it? So that's kind of the wisdom model that, believe it or not, was there in scripture when I started um, so really looking. I think the beauty of scripture is sometimes reflected in the world around us. Mm. Yeah, so those of you who are looking for a new business strategy, Proverbs 31, there you go. But Hannah, one of the things that really stood out to me, um, one of the things that I was thinking about is Praxis, an organization that um, works with ventures and um, entrepreneurs, the way that they def define redemptive is creative restoration through sacrifice. And one of the qualities that you mentioned about wisdom is is sacrifice like there is an there's an element of sacrifice and that's kind of what i even just heard you coming like saying just now is like there are there are moments where you will have to have to sacrifice and that is that sort of idea right there creative restoration through sacrifice i love that because i feel like that paints just a really vivid picture of what wisdom looks like now um 
I know you started to touch on this a little bit. Just I want to touch on servant leadership here. Um, in your in your book, you talk about how servant leadership is really the foundation. It's kind of the heart of an organization, um, and really is what that's the thing that drives uh, positive outcomes for for any business or any organization. So maybe just first, if you could just talk what you mean when you say servant leadership. I know we probably all have a lot of different ideas about that, but then also how you're seeing the Bible define it and where it shows up. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, you know, there's there's been a lot of talk about, you know, okay, well, maybe with sacrificial leadership or transformational leadership, there's lots of different models um, of leadership and different ways of looking at it. Um, I really like servant leadership as a concept for, for one big reason. Um, and this is around all of the different strategies that I really focused on in the wisdom-based model. Servant leadership as a concept has been studied for over 50 years. Hmm in businesses. So there is a lot of evidence for how well servant leadership works. So let me define servant leadership. If you're not familiar with the concept, I mean, servant leadership really is defined as as a leader who wants to serve first. Leadership comes secondary. Hmm. The reason you're in leadership is because you want to be able to serve other people better. And leadership gives you resources to love and serve people. Um, So when you think about what is a servant leader, um, it's somebody focused on emotional healing, Um, creating value for the community, for workers, for their leaders, for their customers, for their suppliers, being able to articulate, you know, ideas well, being able to empower other people. And empowerment means being in a position of power that you can share. So empowering isn't just like, you know, empowering, giving people autonomy. It's about sharing power. Um, You know, a servant leader helps subordinates grow by putting subordinates first. And so when you think about servant leadership, I know we get hung up sometimes on the servant word as opposed to sacrificial or whatever, but a servant leader, if you're putting other people first, you really are sacrificing your own goals, your own motivations to love and serve other people. And then the last one is behaving ethically. So just having that baseline of ethics is really important. And the really cool thing about this is that this has been studied pretty deeply for a long time. And actually there's a lot of faculty at Baylor who are leaders in this you know, area of thought leadership and servant leadership. Um, there is a lot of data, there's a lot of evidence. This makes companies more profitable. Wow. Isn't that cool? That is so cool. I think cool. that's the coolest thing ever. Yeah, it's so like God so to do that to motivated by yeah. money. Yeah. Hey, oh yeah, absolutely. Hey, Hannah, I wanna go back to Proverbs chapter 31. I, as a women's pastor here, I was super excited that you were able to draw all these wisdom principles and apply them to business and help people understand like you you gotta read Proverbs 31 in the right culture and context. Um, so, and I'll, I'll be careful here because I'll, I'll go down a, a road with you here. But we're <laughs> gonna go back to Proverbs chapter 31 and I wanna talk about this picture of a noble woman who you describe as leading a global company in ancient Israel to the benefit of everyone with whom she interacts. And especially throughout your book, your work, and you see how business setting is this preeminent mission for people of faith to make the world a better place. So I want you to speak to that a little bit. Tell us how your understanding of scripture, especially particularly in Proverbs 31, really transformed the way you approach business in the world. Yeah, so I started off by saying wisdom was a woman, right? Yep. You, heard, you heard that. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, and and this is really key because we we sometimes kind of put wisdom literature in this like weird place and Proverbs thirty one in a weird place because the the protagonist because the hero is a woman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's a weird kind of idea to say, okay, well, who was this lady wisdom? 
or martial woman. And um, so in the ancient Near East, you know, wisdom was always personified as a woman, not just in Israel. So when you look to Assyria to the north, wisdom was a, a warrior goddess. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, Ishtar would have been their warrior goddess. And then later, we see in the New Testament in Ephesus that um, wisdom was actually worshipped in Ephesus as the goddess Sophia. And we actually get philosophy. The entire field of philosophy just means philo, Sophia, or the love of wisdom. And so in the ancient times, you know, all the way back, even before Israel, all the way into Greek and Roman societies, wisdom, for whatever reason, was always personified as a woman. And wisdom was always personified as a woman who was in action in whatever the economic action was of that time. So if you think of wisdom as a goddess of war, war was how you had economic gains as a nation. When you get into Proverbs 31, wisdom is an entrepreneur. You know, it's no longer like, let's kill them and take their land. It's how do we build out our land? And it says she's building out her land. She's taking land yes. Yes. through business. Right. Yes. Right. She's selling textiles and she's expanding her business into vineyards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yep. So she's taking land. And I love this. There's two key words around um, Lady Wisdom, right? And, and how she shows up in Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. It starts off with an excellent woman. And we sometimes it says like a noble wife, a noble or an excellent wife. Um, the terms there are actually, um, it says there is um, an eset chayel. Um, and the eset chayel actually means valiant woman in Hebrew. It doesn't, I mean, she has a husband and she has children. And I, I love my husband and I love my children. I'm a wife as well. But it's not talking about um, a woman from this kind of modern day household perspective. It's talking about this excellent, this valiant woman in terms of trade. And the household in ancient Near East was actually the, the, the basic economic unit of trade. So when you think about the family-owned business, back then the household was, you know, it's the, they had the sheep, they had, you know, they would go into the markets and trade. And so she's actually running the household, which is unique. So let me bring this to today. So like, so what, what does that matter for us? When you see this excellent woman, this this term chayel for valor, it, it doesn't show up very many other places in scripture. And it's important to understand it because she's not just like, you know, really cool and pretty and great at sewing clothes and, <laughs> you know, her kids yeah. and her husband are happy, which they are. They are happy. But this term chayel, it actually means valiant. It means mighty. And it describes David's mighty men. Hmm. And it also describes um, Boaz in the book of Boaz and Ruth. And actually, when it shows up for David's mighty men, it focuses on their might in battle. When it shows up to describe Boaz, it actually is translated as wealth. It, it describes his might and his valor in the battle of business, right? We know business is about. <laughs> um, and so I love this about Proverbs 31 because she's showing up in this space that's used to define mighty men who take territory. So this passage really isn't just for, for Mother's Day. This passage is for every day and especially our work days when we think about how to read proverbs 31 and this this woman who really is running a textile company she's buying products from all over the world she's transforming those those you know raw materials and the fact that she's sourcing flax and wool in the markets means that her business is bigger than what her household can actually supply yeah Hmm. she has more demand than what her fields can grow and so she's she's doing this on scale at scale and she's expanding the business and she's selling her products to merchants. And I, lo- I love where Proverbs 31 lands with give her a share in the works of her hands. And it actually means that like give her shares, like give her ownership, like profit, you know, like profit shares. 
in this company that she's built and literally praised in the city. And this is what we see when we really walk in wisdom. We see, you know, businesses that are excellent, that are profitable, so we can pay our employees and our suppliers. Really, the goal of profit isn't just to line our own pockets, it's to, pri- to provide dignity in work for the people around us and products that people need in the market. People yeah. needed sashes, yeah, you know, and they, they needed good clothes and, and you know, they needed, they needed wine. Yeah. <laughs> and she was providing those things and in a way that blessed her whole household, which includes her employees. Yeah. Really cool business model. Um, you know, when you think about her valor and her might in taking territory, it's really balanced. Mm-hmm. It's a 21 verse poem and poems have an arc, right? Yep. They, there's a mountain top to the poem. And so we hear a lot of like what she's doing, but really the poem centers around two passages or two verses right in the middle. So Lady Wisdom, like the goddess of Ishtar in Assyria, holds tools in her hand. I love this picture. I, ca- I can't like talk about it without like doing it. Yeah, yeah. Holding the tool she in actually hand. has a tool in her hand. You guys can't For see it. For all of you listening, yes. Just hold up, hold up a wrench. Imagine with me the tools of your trade. And it says that, you know, she holds the, the, the distaff in her right hand. She holds the spindle in her left hand. And, you know, I, I think before I really dove into wisdom literature and thought of it, through business, I kind of always thought of like the old lady in the back of church knitting, mm, yeah. <laughs> right? Cause you could like needles and a spindle. And um, if you actually look at ancient times, the, the goddess of war in Assyria actually held a distaff and a spindle. They weren't like domestic tools, they huh. were trade tools. And I love it because Prabhupada once says she holds the distaff and the spindle. And so we might have these images of goddesses of war in neighboring countries, but the next verse is so important. Because what do you do with power? Well, it says she extends her right hand and she extends she extends her right hand to the poor and she extends her left hand to the needy. Yeah. And this is at the crux of wisdom, biblical, divine, godly wisdom. You have power, you do your work with excellence, but you understand that the purpose of it is to extend that power, to extend that love to others as Jesus demonstrated for us. Wow. And yeah. that's at the heart of wisdom. Yeah, and it's so good because that means it's applicable to every single person, no matter what job, student, context, position you find yourself in, because the way that we apply wisdom in our lives and are obedient, we can extend that to all of the people around us. Which takes us to our yeah. final question as we wrap up our time together. Right. We uh, you talk a lot about your book and you end it with this eternal perspective. And you actually mentioned it in the beginning of our time together. You were very passionate about how you can partner with God in the kingdom of God work. Right. How that Mm -hmm. helps us posture our lives within our mission, our strategy, our employees, um, just through this unique lens of the kingdom of God. Um, maybe how that even shifts our orientation towards sustainability, strategy, sourcing, providing high quality work and ethical business practices. How can we be someone with solid reputation that really seeks to make a difference in our immediate context? And Hannah, you've seen the impact of this play out in real world situations. Can you share one last story with us with someone who really caught on to this idea? What happened and what was the impact that you've researched when someone participates with the kingdom of God in the here and the now? Yeah, I love this. And, you know, I think um, at the heart of this, you know, there's there's like a really simple like word shift for me that shifted me from like how we think about our our partnership with the gospel. 
And it's the difference of thinking that God and the, and the gospel, you know, the work of Jesus saves us from this world, you know, for eternal life, but actually the work of the gospel, the work of the cross saves us for this world. Mm-hmm. Yes. And when people see that, when entrepreneurs see that, when people in politics see that, when, when Christians in, you know, in business, when Christians in entrepreneurship, when Christians in politics, when Christians in education realize that God didn't save us from this world, but he saved it for us for this world, then we get to partner with God. And, you know, Daniel, kind of going back to that practice, you know, kind of thinking of what is the redemptive work of Christ and how do we find not not to create our own redemptive work, but to understand what is Christ doing in this world and how do I partner with him? Yeah. Right? Now yeah. how do I get God to bless my stuff? <laughs> and so I love it when you have this mindset of saying, um, how do I bring the gospel? How do I bring the kingdom? You know, how how do I take my salvation and apply it for this world? Um, we see it in individuals and organizations that really look for brokenness in this world and pause to ask. Has God gifted me in redeeming this? Is God gifted me and my specific skill sets in providing a solution? Or do I know somebody that I can bless so that they can redeem this? And I love it. Um, I'm I'm thinking of some specific examples of organizations that have done this and of people. Um, And I'm actually really inspired. I talk about it, I think, actually, in, in one of the final chapters about the story of Tom Chappelle at Toms of Maine. So if you've seen Tom's of Maine, it's like a toothpaste, organic yeah. Um, yeah. health food brand. Big fan. And he really, he saw some real brokenness in, you know, um, the products that we have in terms of like personal hygiene, <laughs> which doesn't sound like super like, ooh, I'm going to like redeem the world and have a redemptive framework around toothpaste <laughs> around and deodorant. deodorant. <laughs> around deodorant. Um, but he did. And... I love it because he took a step back after they, you know, grew Thompson Maine to a multi, multi-million dollar company. Um, he went back to seminary at Harvard and, you know, he was like, okay, well, I've done this in business. Now maybe I'll go into like real ministry. And he had a professor while he was at Harvard that said, look, you have like 10,000, 20,000 employees, you know, that are showing up at your company every day that you get to impact, that you get to provide, you know, really fun work for to provide products that people need um why would you why would you leave that and you know serve serve a smaller congregation i'm not saying that you shouldn't go into full-time ministry if that's what you're called to but for for tom chappelle um really where his skills were were in business and his professor said no take everything you know about this kingdom mindset go back and reframe reshape things that you missed in your company and really think about um, how can your company have an impact in, you know, people impact and, and the product impact? And I love that story um, because sometimes we think like, oh, I'm going to get to the peak of my, you know, my my career in business or some other field. And then I can give back to the church or then I'll, maybe I'll, when I retire, I'll really do church work. And I think what I loved about Tom's story is that um, he was able to bring the church and bring kingdom work into what he did every day within the skills that God had gifted him with. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really, yeah. it's really inspiring to say, um, understand what you're gifted at, what God has given you to work with and say, God, what is the sphere? Who are the people that I'm called to love and put me in the place where I can really love them well. Yeah. And yeah. Um, we see that throughout scripture. And it's, I think the Tom Chappelle story is, is super inspiring to me. Totally. Yeah. And I, I love that because wherever you are in the organization, where wherever you sit, wherever you find yourself, if you're in the job that you don't really like, whatever the case is, the question for you is where are the areas of brokenness that you see around you and how can you be an agent 
of uh, restoration um, that God has called you um, to partner with. I love, love that. So Hannah, thank you so much for, be, for being here with us today. We really enjoyed our time, our conversation. Um, you brought us a lot to really think about when it comes to um, embodying and demonstrating wisdom in the workplace. So for our listeners, maybe just give them uh, or just tell them where they can find you and uh, how they can connect with you. Yeah, thanks. So I do have a website. It's super easy. It's hannahstoles.com. <laughs> you can look me up there and, you know, like everybody else, I'm on LinkedIn, okay. cool. Instagram. All right. Mm-hmm. Hannah, again, thank you. Friends, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Faith at Work. Our conversations happen every other week. So in two weeks, you can expect another interview to help you think critically about faith and work intersecting in creative and inspiring ways so that we can be people who demonstrate wisdom in the workplace. Also, you can subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Email us your suggestions, questions, or ideas to workpodcast at ccclife.org. Lastly, tell your friends that the way they work matters too and invite them to join along in the conversation. We'll talk to you soon.